Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay. We can be found on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Today's topic is a subject that a lot of people ask us about, which is sulfites in wine. And specifically, what we wanted to talk about is this new device on the market that claims to be able to remove the sulfites from your wine. You're so into uh, these new technologies when it comes to wine, Mark. What was your initial reaction to the idea of something that could take sulfites out of a wine? Gadgets, yeah. Gadgets. I, I love my gadgets. And, you know, two interesting things is sulfites, always the big topic we get questions about all the time time and then to invent gadgets to help remove them from your wine it's it's very interesting this was a device that the university of kansas is developing and it's a a throwaway device which is different than the other gadgets that are on the market today right so it's something that you would pour your wine through and there would be a material or a medium there that would sort of filter out the sulfites and hopefully not filter out all the other things that give wine its personality and its character and its flavor. Yeah, I like the idea that it's a throwaway and it's, I believe it was going to be less than a dollar per unit. The other gadget that was out there, I think it's ULO. Is that how you pronounce it? U-L-L-O. I think it's either mm-hmm. Swiss or it was a like an aerated device that you pour the wine through to remove the sulfites, but it cost $80. So then you could clean it and use it again. Whereas this device from Kansas is going to be like a strip. You just pour it through and then you throw it away. So I, I like the consumable idea behind it. Uh, rather than having one expensive gadget. This would only really be an issue for you if you felt that you had a sensitivity to sulfites. And a lot of people tend to think that if they have any negative reaction to drinking wine, that, oh my goodness, it has to be the sulfites because there's that warning on the label that says contain sulfites. But I would tell people to be cautious in blaming the sulfites for all the problems that you experience with your wine. If you get a headache after drinking too much, chances are it's not the sulfites you probably just had a little bit too much alcohol so i would i would just say be a little cautious when thinking about these things that are are saying that they're going to take something specific like sulfites out of your wine so the idea would be removing something you feel is not a a natural thing in the wine which it it is a natural component of the wine would you use this kim i personally would not i don't have any issues with sulfites in wine that's me personally i think that there, there needs to be a little bit better education out there and something that would tell people or at least try to convince people that that sulfites are not this uh, boogeyman that a lot of people seem to think that they are. You know, there are other chemical components in wine, whether naturally occurring or not, uh, that could be doing a little bit more damage to your body if consumed in excess than the sulfite. There are way, way higher sulfite levels in a lot of other food products that people eat that you don't even know about. You know, there's not a whole lot of awareness about it because they're not necessarily labeled on the package. So I think sulfites have become something that a lot of blame is placed on just because of lack of knowledge. We hear that all the time. People, they just get afraid of seeing that that a wine contains sulfites. It's that warning label yeah, that really does scary, it, I think. And they don't want any, what they assume is an additive in the wine. So, I mean, this low cost, for 
less than a dollar, and they say it removes 99% of the sulfites in the wines. I, th- I think the cost will get people interested. Do you think, Kim, that if you use this and you filter out your wine, would it then be able to be put down for a couple of days since you're removing the preservative? I wouldn't think so. I would want to do some experimentation on that and also to see if, if you take the same bottle of wine, say you pour half of it through this filter, half of it you just pour into a regular glass and then taste them and see if you feel like there is anything else that has been stripped from the wine. It does it have less acidity to it. I have the flavors change, you know, those kind of things. I would be cautious about doing more damage to the wine by putting it through a filter of this sort. So it that seems like what a lot of the research into finding the right kind of filtration method is looking toward not stripping the wine of all the other components and only getting rid of the sulfites. So I would be very curious to see how it would have an impact on the rest of the wine. I did see a few things online about people asking other questions about filtering wine to remove sulfites. There was a article about would a coffee filter remove sulfites and they were saying scientifically no so i mean these people did do research and this this paper disposable product does work so it'll be interesting to to trend to see where this goes yeah You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine with Mark and Kim. If you'd like to find out more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website, vinitaswineworks.com. Our next topic is about something that has been trending very popular last over the last year. It was a, a blog in the Press Democrat about canned wine. Kim, what are your initial thoughts when people say canned wine? I try to be open-minded. I'm thinking thinking that they're a little more seasonally driven. So I tend to see a lot more displays of can of wine in cans in the summertime. People looking for an alternative type of wine container that they can either have next to the pool or take on a camping trip or something like that. I like to keep an open mind when it comes to changing technologies or a new way of looking at packaging or labeling of wines because it doesn't necessarily impact the quality of the wine in the container when you're just talking about the container that it comes in. So I thought this is an interesting topic because the types of wines that we might see in a can are reflective of kind of this new, I would say, more casual approach to wine. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, and I thought for sure you were going to say take to the beach because that's the biggest selling point people when they bring them in to me for me to buy is say, oh, these are so convenient to take to the beach. I would love to take wine to the beach. I I don't see it. I, I mean, they there are some numbers that are really interesting. 6.4 million canned wines were sold in 2015, and that increased to 14.5 million in 2006, so 125% increase. So this is what I get hit with all the time. You have to get on the canned wine. It's popular. It's trending. Oh, and I don't know, but I'm, I'm now seeing more evidence of this going to take off because when a winery wants to can the wine, so they produce a wine and they want to can it, they what they generally do is is call a mobile canning truck. Hmm. So instead of saying bottled by on the can, you'll say canned by. <laughs> well, of course, little, that makes yeah, sense. It's a little truck that shows up. But what's happening is it's so popular that these trucks, the scheduling is a nightmare. So they'll have the, the wine ready to be to put in can, but the truck is so backed up, they can't, they can't schedule it. Hmm. So one of the big guys, Gallo, now is now building or almost completed their own canning plant. So it would be the first canning only plant. So I 
think now you're going to see all the major brands in a can pack. Well, that's very interesting. It's sort of following what happens with like a custom crush facility where you are growing grapes and you want to make wine, but you don't necessarily have all the money to put into buying the equipment to make the wine. You can go to these designated places, just bring all your grapes and make your wines there, or you can rent equipment and stuff like that. So that, that's very interesting, sort of the, the changing technologies and the changing mindsets. And But you have to think of the practical side of it too. It's like, how are we actually going to get it in the can? <laughs> yeah. It, when a big corporation like that follows this trend and builds a, a, their mm-hmm. own plan specifically for it, you know that this trend is, is a thing. And they were kind of saying it's a millennial trend. I don't see the trend yet in my retail, but we have to follow it. That's, I wonder you know, how long a wine in a can will last as opposed to how long does a wine in a bottle last? We talk a lot about closures and screw caps versus corks and limited air exposure and, and all those sorts of things when we talk about wine and aging and potential and it going bad. And there's problems with bag in a box because the packaging inside the box is air permeable. So it only has a limited amount of time that it can spend on the shelf before it starts going bad. I wonder how much research there has been into uh, the longevity of wine in cans. Yeah, that's a great point. I've never, the ones I've seen, I've not seen Best Buy dates, whereas you were mm-hmm. saying a box wine, they have dates, yeah. they expire. So they do. I, I would think it's something that they, they can't determine yet because it's so new. Yeah. But for freshness, I would feel it, it will need some sort of shelf life yeah. dates. Uh, one of the other things that kind of bugs me on this whole thing, Kim, is the sizes. I, I've seen 187 milliliter size cans. I've seen 375 milliliter cans. I've seen 500 milliliter cans. So it doesn't seem like they've decided what is the standard size, a serving size in a can that people like. Do they like, do they consider one glass a 187 or a one glass of 500 milliliter, it's a big difference. Yeah. And it adds to the price too, because if it's not a wine-based can product, but it's a wine, you're talking, you could pay 15 bucks for a four pack of uh, 500 milliliter Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. Would you buy that over a bottle cost-wise? Yeah, I guess it, it depends. You know, we sort of talked about the same exact thing when it comes to boxes of wine. If you have a, a three liter box of wine, that's the equivalent of four bottles of wine. So changing how you are pre- receiving the price that you're paying, it's like you need to think a little bit about, oh, how does this break down into how much I'm paying by the glass or how much I'm paying by the traditional 750 milliliter bottle? At least they're sticking to 187s and 500s and 375s and aren't doing something completely wacky like, you know, 20 ounces. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 25 ounce natty ice can. A pint of wine. Yeah. I mean, would this be something thinking you're grabbing it to go to a pool or a beach? I I just don't know. You're picking up a four pack of wine to bring so would you drink a bottle of wine when you're on the beach well and i also think it depends on what you're really using it for i mean you're not going to really bring a bottle of wine to the beach to consume in that environment that you want to spend a whole lot of time thinking about i think you know this is it's it's for pleasure it's for enjoyment it's for having something fun to drink but not necessarily in the direction of this is a fine wine that i want to spend a lot of time smelling and swirling and sniffing and really getting to the ins and outs of so for the fact that it has a place as a consumable that you don't need to think a whole lot about. I think it kind of fits. It, it kind of fits. For me, it's a retail nightmare because the, the number sizes, then you have four packs, you have singles. W- what are we going to have? A mixed six pack of canned wine section now? It, it's just the options of how to sell it and how to present it on the shelf are just huge. But is that any different from what you see with different size beer cans and beer, beer bottles? Yeah, well, that's the beer trend too, but it's never usually wine is 
there's never usually follow that kind of retail space trend. I would I, that's kind of how I'm looking at it. So it's a whole new thing for you too. It's, it's a new thing, and I'm still not on the bandwagon yet. But when there's these industry numbers, you have to look at it. The other thing that trends a lot too is that there's many reports that say don't crack the can and chug it out of the can. But then you're going to the beach, so were you going to pack a plastic glass? And, yes. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, <laughs> and there's some that come with straws. I, I just it's it's just an interesting trend that uh, we have to tell people about. It's out there and we like to know what you think. That's why they make acrylic wine glasses so that you can bring them to the pool and they won't break. Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find us online at franklinliquors.com for Mark and vinitaswineworks.com for me. Topic we are going to talk about now is something that I don't think an awful lot of wine consumers ever think about, which is fake wine or wine that in the bottle is not what the label says that it is. So sort of counterfeit wine, forgeries of wine, not necessarily not being wine in the bottle, but that the wine that you think think you are drinking because of what it's telling you it is, isn't so much the case. We ran across a news article about a bust in France of giant quantities of wine that was labeled as Bordeaux, but was actually wine that came from more bulk producing areas in the Languedoc. This is a fascinating topic and this pops up every once in a while. And there are examples of it kind of all the time from all over the world. What do you think about this particular instance in, uh, in Bordeaux? Bordeaux number was huge. It was like, what, a half a million it's bottles? It's like a half a million That's bottles. A bottles. It was crazy. It was 560,000 bottles of wine. That That's just crazy. So I was trying to understand, was it the distributor gets the wine from a vineyard and then they're, they're making fake versions of the wine? So is it the distributor or is it the winery that's... I, I'm not really so clear. Uh, it didn't really say no, there where wasn't. it was happening. But I would think the French, I mean, if they're doing things in the the winery, then the government would be reporting it. Whereas this seems like they're reporting it on the other side of after they're receiving the mm-hmm. wine. So I guess the whole issue for me on this whole fake wine thing, is it a investment wine buyer issue or is it a consumer issue? This one seemed to be a little of both because it was very broad as far as which wines were being faked, I guess you can say. So some of it was basic Bordeaux and then others were these really famous high-end labels from places like Margot and other places in Bordeaux that make more expensive bottles. So it was sort of fascinating to me that it was a little bit of everything. I think if I'm spending a lot of money at wine auctions or investing in, in wines, I'm worried about this. But mm-hmm. as a just going into a retail store or a wine list, I'm not thinking that it's fake. And that's why it? I think that this isn't an issue that too many people think about because I don't know if we just automatically trust what the label tells us it is or that at the end of the day, if you just want a bottle of red wine and what you're pouring out of the bottle is a bottle of red wine, then kind of fine with it. So it's, I agree that I think it's these more high-end bottles and things that are going up for auction or are being used as investments that people need to be careful that the wine in the bottle is actually what it says on the label. It's not just limited to France. We've, we've hear these stories all the time in Italy and China doing a lot of things with mm-hmm. faking out wine. But there was a, a few instances in the United States where there were these gentlemen who auctioned, they specialize in aux- auctioning off wines and they had such good palates that they could taste an expensive 
wine and replicate it in a lab and they would save the labels and everything else. So that became a whole big criminal thing in the United States. Yeah, this has been going on for quite a few years and it was very, it's been interesting to follow and especially all the other specialists who had to come in and, and really be involved in this, you know, people whose business it was to be able to spot a fake label, even a really, really well done fake label and the shape of the bottle and the color of the bottle and all these other things that kind of went into this this whole counterfeit scheme. And it was millions and millions and millions of dollars worth. And that's actually what got that particular gentleman in trouble. It was the label experts that caught just little tiny imperfections in the label. The wine was like perfection. Mm -hmm. What's your opinion, Kim, on could you tell, like if you drank a wine all the time, could you tell if something didn't seem right with the label? No, probably not. Labels change all the time. You know, we see brands of wine that it almost seems like every other vintage, they've got a new label on the bottle, whether for, it's for marketing purposes or change of ownership or or what have you. And I realize that we're not talking about a $12 bottle of California Cabernet. We're more talking about these storied wines that have very long traditions and lots of people that go into, into making them and making them what they are. But no, I don't think that I would necessarily tell. I'm, no, I don't think so. I would probably be more likely to notice that something was off with the taste than with the, with the bottle. I mean, how much time do we actually spend looking at a wine label? I could see why if you're an investor of wine and you buy this really expensive wine and you think you have the real thing and then someone comes along and tells you what you have is just fake. So embarrassing. How, yeah, I mean, that would just be... <laughs> that was just real so terrible. Disappointing. In, in the past, you know, I was saying earlier about Italy, but I've heard where the government has gone into wineries and where the government was, says you can only grow this grape and they actually walk in and they see barrels of another grape. Right. And you hear stories like that, I think more often than, than the fake yeah. replacement of wine. This this just still just, it strikes me as so strange as coming out of France, which is so Government's regulated. regulated yeah. It's so regulated and they really keep on top of what's being grown where and do you have too many vines planted in a particular area or not enough vines. There just, there seems to be so much oversight and then to see something of this magnitude going down in France. I mean, I, I, I honestly can see it a little bit more in Italy, just cultural differences and the Italians a lot of the time are sort of like, you know, bah, we're going to do whatever we want to do. But you, I really feel like you don't see that all that much in France, which is maybe why this strikes me as, as such a newsworthy item. Yeah, and it's probably why it was at the next level from the wine, because the winery would be would lose all government right. rights, right? I mean, so it would be, you still don't know, though, if the winery somehow told the distributor how to do this. Mm-hmm. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine with Mark and Kim, where we're exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. Next, we're going to talk about vintage charts from one of our favorite sites, Vine Pair. Uh, Kim, do you use a vintage chart in any way? Not, Maybe we should say yeah, what it is first. Not right? as much as I used to. So what a vintage chart is. So the vintage is the year that the grapes were grown and made into wine. Just it's bare bones. That's what it is, is the year that those grapes were, were grown. And what a vintage chart is, is it will have a list down one side of the page of different regions of the world. And that will have a list along the top of the page of different years. And you can figure out what years were better years in certain regions. And sometimes it will tell you why it was a better year. Did they have perfect 
weather or did they have rain at an inopportune time? All sorts of of things. Is it an earlier drinking wine? Is it something that you should hold on to? Little bits of information like that so that you can figure out when you are shopping for a wine or when you're trying to buy one off of a wine list that, oh, this particular vintage was a better year than another one. It's really what it comes down to is trying to figure out, is this going to be a better bottle than, than some other one that we have? The problem with them is that they don't take individual wineries or individual vineyards into consideration. And there can be a lot of variables at play with how a winemaker has dealt with a particular vintage. And I would say 10, 15 years ago, I paid a little bit more attention to them than I do now. And that really is the whole point of this article in VinePair is that vintages matter a whole lot less these days. Yeah. And they were trying to say winemaker versus consumer using the vintage chart. And you can find these most major publication, wine publications will put out their own version of the chart. So Wine Spectator, Wine Enthusiast, uh, Robert Parker, where I find myself using it more nowadays is because it went from a paper or a little pocket size chart. You can use an app now. You know me, my technology, my apps. So you can easily look something up. The problem being is most of the time when you compare one chart to another chart, they're different. So you can look at, say, Napa Cabernet or Napa Chardonnay and pick a year. And everybody you would think would be within one to two points of rating the vintage. So they'll rate it between 50 and 100. And I find that interesting that at many times they're way off. The other thing that will tell you is when to drink or when to hold it uh, when it's reached its peak. Shoot. Yeah, it's like everything else in wine. You know, so much of it is subjective and so much of it relies on one individual's opinion. And at the end of the end of the day, that's really what it is, is it's an opinion. So you might have a lot of experience in tasting one particular wine from one particular region. So you kind of feel like you know a little bit more about how it's going to develop or how it's going to taste at a certain point in its life. But again, that's just one part of the whole the whole thing about what the wine is going to taste like. So yeah, it's because it's so individual and because you know, we our technology has changed so much and has gotten so much better when it comes to making wine that there's been this shift of it's no longer just what the weather gives you. It's what the winemaker can do with the fruit that she or he is given. So that technological aspect, I really think shouldn't be downplayed. Now, how it could be helpful is if you looking at a wine list or you're in a retail store and you see two Napa cabs, the same producer, one's a 14 vintage, one's a 13 vintage, and you quickly want to go to your little app and you could see which one had a better rated vintage year, you could go with that that mm-hmm. way. I mean, I think that's useful. But as far as when we do classes and, and taste things, I don't see anybody really asking questions about vintage chart or yeah, using it. I don't either. I, I'm more concerned with the age of the wine and not necessarily how that particular year was. So, I mean, I generally know that if it's an older bottle of white wine, it's probably not going to be showing as well as a younger bottle of white wine and just kind of keeping an eye on the development of either particular regions or particular grape varieties and knowing what the window is between too young to drink and too old to drink and not necessarily concentrating on, oh, this particular vintage got a 92, but this vintage got an 89. And do I want to not pick up that bottle, which could be really quite good, but just that broadly that vintage might not have been as perfect as the other one. And I find a bottle squirreled away in the cellar and I, wow, this must be horrible by now. And the child will say, yeah, it's past its peak. And then you open and it's perfectly yeah, fine. That's so. happened to me too. It, it's so, it's really so individual. I mean, each bottle of wine is different from each other bottle of wine, even if they all came in the same case. There's all these variables, whether it's the cork, whether it's 
something happened on the bottling line. There's really no experience is key. The other thing I we talk about a lot, Kim, is if this is not really a quality indicator of the actual vintage year to me, because say this year with all the wildfires in California, they had a bad year as far as things happening. Right. But the quality of the grapes were good. So they're right. going to rate the vintage good. So when you look at these charts, you think, wow, they had a great year, but they had horrible year. Yeah, really. it doesn't so. tell you everything that's going on. France was the same way. They had a, a terrible spring last year. Quantities of grapes that were lost just because of the weather at the wrong time. We still will see that this particular vintage in France will be rated highly because the quality of the grapes were good. And it's not going to say anything about the fact that the quantity was down like 50-60%. So that's one big point of these charts. It's not a quality indicator of how the year went as a grower. Right. It's more of what it produced. Right. So what the, what the end product in the bottle should be like. Thank you for joining us for the wonderful world of wine. If you want access to the articles that we talk about or to hear a little bit more about what we do, go to our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine. Cheers. Cheers.